Thank you, Professor Lewis, for that kind introduction. I want to say just a word about the participants in the panel and a little bit about the agreed upon makeup of how we would go about it. Uh, what we thought we would do is each individual would present his views for about 10 minutes and then have five minute rebuttal between each of the ones. Because when I do a four views book, I always like to allow for some response. I think that's part of the point to a dialogue. And so that's the way we thought we'd do it. And then that should leave about a half hour for others who would have questions who would like to address them to one of the panelists. We're fortunate to have uh, a really outstanding group here today. I think each individual is a man who's published widely and understands his viewpoint. Uh, the first, and they'll speak in the order of their listing in the program, the first is uh, Dr. Greg Bonson, who's scholar-in-residence at the Southern, Southern California Center for Christian Studies. Uh, Greg was educated at Westminster Seminary and received the Ph.D. from the University of Southern California. And he's published a book, uh, his most recent book, among others, I won't mention all of them, but it's No Other Standard, The Anomie and Its Critics. And he said he has some forms here. If anyone would care to uh, buy one of these books or have one sent to them, they can uh, get a form from him. And the second uh, speaker is uh, Dr. Jack Deere. Jack taught at Dallas Seminary in the Old Testament Department for... Uh, what, 11, 12 years, Jack, something like that. He received his doctorate from Dallas. And the last three years, he's been with the Vineyard Christian Fellowship in Anaheim, uh, working with uh, John Wimber. Then the next individual mentioned on the program is George Knight, George W. Knight, third professor of New Testament at a new seminary in Florida, Knox Theological Seminary in Fort Lauderdale a man well known to those of us who frequent these ETS meetings. Uh, George has a new commentary on the Pastoral Letters, which is to be published by uh, Erdman's in the coming year. And finally, the uh, fourth member, uh, last but far from least in my book, a man whose work I've always enjoyed, is Bob Saucy, a man who has taught at Talbot School of Theology, Professor of Theology there for over 30 years. A book that he's written that I found always very helpful was The Church in God's Program, which has been used widely as a text and is still in print. He too uh, earned his doctorate at Dallas Seminary. We appreciate uh, each of your attendance at this discussion and look forward to each of our participants. They'll just remain seated. And we'll start with uh, Dr. Bonds. The program you have has introduced me as a theonomist, and uh, I might want to begin by trying to get that label off me, but it's going to stick, so I'm not going to bother with that. However, it's probably important to point out that um, theonomy is a specific moral theory and I believe that the reason I've been asked to participate in this panel is more broad than the issues that are brought up in the theonomic point of view. Very probably, I'm sitting here because I'm supposed to represent more broadly a uh, 
neo-Puritan or post-millennial or reconstructionist point of view. From the reconstructionist perspective with respect to the general character of Christ's redemptive kingdom, um, we would find for the most part agreement with the thematic survey that was offered yesterday by Dr. Carl Henry, uh, his premillennial application in history aside from that. The general outline and character of the kingdom as described there uh, fits very nicely into the point of view that we have with respect to the redemptive kingdom of Christ. I would note especially here the historical establishment of Christ's saving kingdom at his first advent, uh, this emphasis upon the already and the not yet in the kingdom. Secondly, that the spiritual agency of the church is to be emphasized, its methods are spiritual, and thus we deplore the politicization of the church. Thirdly, the affirmation that we heard in that lecture of the historical and earthly expression of Christ's reign, which uh, we fear is often lost in amillennialism. Uh, fourthly, the insistence that the regenerate church's involvement in politics is not a matter of establishing the kingdom of God, for it has been established already by his son. Rather, the church's involvement is but the working out of the implications of that established kingdom. And then finally, uh, we would especially agree with his repudiation of imposing God's law upon rebellious nations. I want to emphasize that because as I travel, I find more and more that particular misrepresentation needs to be deflated. Uh, there is no thought at all in Reconstructionist uh, theology that the law of God is imposed on anybody, uh, unless you're thinking of the internal work of the Holy Spirit imposing it on the heart of man. Also, as I've been sitting here throughout this um, uh, conference, uh, it's been a really pleasant surprise to see so many healthy emphases from my post-millennial perspective in the lectures and general sessions regarding the kingdom of Christ. It's been a decade since I've been with you here at the ETS, and the general spirit, first of all, and the direction of discussion seem to me to have really changed dramatically. I mean, you even welcome post-millennialists to come and talk to you now. That's, that's great, and you do it with charity. I appreciate that very much. I would think, for instance, of this morning's lecture as well by uh, Dr. Beasley Murray and the response by Craig um, Blomberg. Uh, the commendable affirmations there on inaugurated eschatology, um, the statement that Satan is already decisively bound, that the kingdom is not entirely internal but extends to all of creation, that there must be a social outworking of the kingdom, indeed even some commendable affirmation of uh, Rauschenbach's social gospel. All of this is so surprising to someone who's been away for a decade from you. Um, I'm going to lay out for you specifically what I think we should be looking for in the expression of Christ's redemptive kingdom at this time, but you know in only 10 minutes this would have to be put in a broader context to be understood. Yesterday I lectured on the um, visible success of the kingdom between the advents, and that lecture will give you greater explanation and context for the things that I'm saying now this afternoon. Basically, I believe that the spiritual redemptive reign of Christ is a present reality which in the power of the Holy Spirit will draw growing recognition and submission through the preaching and nurturing mission of the church, eventually bringing widespread conversion of the nations 
and progressively produce outward sanctified consequences in the earthly affairs of men. And to flesh out that general statement, let me give you three things that you might want to note about an evangelical post-millennial view of this matter. First of all, we believe that the success of Christ's kingdom will be as all-encompassing in scope as sin and its consequences. The success will be as all-encompassing in scope as sin and its consequences. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth. Notice how broad that is. God's will being done on earth. That's what we pray for with the coming of the kingdom. In the Great Commission, Jesus sent the church to teach the nations to observe all that he had commanded. Notice the categorical moral depth and breadth then of what the church should be striving to bring the nations to do. If you look at models of the kingdom that we find in the Bible, looking backwards first at the Old Testament, and you see God's kingdom in anticipation in Old Testament Israel, you notice how broad his involvement in the life of his people was and how broad the law is and how it applies to all areas of life. If you look ahead to the new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells and the kingdom is consummated, you see that um, all iniquity and working of unrighteousness is excluded. And so as we work um, in the kingdom of Jesus Christ today, we have the same scope as uh, Old Testament Israel with respect to God's law applying to all areas of life or the same scope uh, that we're going to see one day in the new heavens and the new earth. We wish to see Jesus' reign come to expression everywhere. We note that in 1 John 3.8, Jesus said he came into this world specifically he was manifested, according to John, to destroy the works of the devil. In Matthew 12, Jesus said that he had power over Satan, he had bound the strong man, and would now despoil his house. And thus, in the 16th chapter of Matthew, he assures the church that the gates of hell will not prevail against it as it goes out to carry on its commission in his name. In 1 Corinthians 15 and Hebrews 10, we see an emphasis upon all of his enemies being subdued under his feet. So my first point then very simply is that we expect the kingdom to show its um, power, to, bring its, uh, to, to come to expression wherever there is defection from the will of God in this world. That leads me secondly then to emphasize the fact that the kingdom will bring success in drawing mankind to faith in God and his redemptive provision. Psalm 22 speaks of worldwide conversion. Isaiah 11:9, the knowledge of the Lord flooding the earth. In Matthew 28, Jesus calls the church to baptize the nations. In Psalm 72, we're told the righteous will flourish in that day. In Romans 11, Paul tells us that the fullness of the Gentiles will come in and all Israel shall be saved. So four quick applications of this second point before I run out of time. The kingdom of God should be seen today in, first of all, the personal peace that individuals have with God, their piety, assurance of salvation, their calling and wholeness in Christ. Remember, Jesus told Nicodemus, without being born again, one cannot see the kingdom of heaven. It is important, then, that the first thing we say about the kingdom and its manifestation is that it brings salvation to individual souls. And if nothing else gets said this afternoon about that, they, we still have said the most important thing. 
In Luke 10, Jesus sends his followers out and gives them power over demons and scorpions and serpents and so forth. They come back amazed at that, and we have to remember, and I hope we do here as we discuss all the other theological ramifications, he says, wonder not at that. Wonder that your names are written in heaven. And that, I, I want to tell you just from the bottom of my heart, the, the most important thing about the kingdom of Jesus Christ is that he's my savior, and that he calls men and women and children like me to belong to him. That's the first manifestation of his kingdom. Secondly, we expect the numerical increase of believers in this world. And the knowledge of the Lord is going to flood the earth. Thirdly, this will bring the blessed purification, strengthening, and expanse of the church. Malachi 1.11, from the rising of the sun to the going down thereof, a pure offering now given to the Lord. And then fourth, this will mean the fellowship, love, and concrete help to the needy that we expect in the church is going to be more and more seen. So, what do we expect as post-millennialists? That the effect of the kingdom will be as broad as sin and its consequences. Secondly, that means mankind must be brought back to faith in God with uh, its effect in uh, evangelism and the growth of the church and the strengthening of it. And then thirdly, and consequentially, the success of the kingdom will be seen in the moral improvement and consecration of all areas of earthly life and conduct. Matthew 6.33 tells us that we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. There are consequences to seeking the kingdom of God that affect such mundane affairs as eating and dress and all the rest. And I'll give you just a real quick um, list of things that I think we could be expecting in the power of the Holy Spirit and the Great Commission going out to the nations. First place, we'll see charity toward the poor um, be expressed. Psalm 72, Isaiah 61, the implications of jubilee. Secondly, we'll see relief of oppression, again, Psalm 72. We'll see justice in our courts and in our laws. The 72nd Psalm, Isaiah 9. By the way, this is where theonomy would come in. What do we mean by justice in our courts? And we believe that the best expression of that is God's holy law itself. We should expect kings to be converted to Christ. In Revelation 21-24, we read in the New Jerusalem that they will bring their glory into it. Well, if they bring their glory into it, then they must have been converted prior to the second coming. So we do expect to see political leaders come to faith in Christ and to um, try to obey him in all areas. Isaiah 65 speaks wondrously of an expansion of lifespans. In Isaiah 2, we read that the nations will hear of God's law, be instructed in it, and turn from their warlike ways to more peaceful pursuits in agriculture and so forth. Indeed, we expect the subduing of the earth to God's glory, not in its perfection, but in large measure. Uh, the sad thing is we often see that subduing of the earth um, far outstripping the church in its work for the spiritual reclamation of souls. The advances in medicine or computer technology or the arts often you know, go so much further than what the church has done in terms of the most basic blessing of the kingdom, and that is salvation. In summary, Zechariah 14, verse 20, tells us what we should be looking for today. For in that day, Zechariah says, in the days of the Messiah, even the bells of the horses will have written upon them, holy to Jehovah. That is to say, the least um, 
important detail of life, the parade decorations of the horses, even they will be consecrated to the service of God. That's what we're looking for in terms of a post-millennial expectation of Christ's redemptive kingdom in this day. Thank you very much, Greg. Next speaker on our list then is uh, the Dr. Jack Deere. Appreciate you for keeping the time so well. I did. You were a model. Eh? <laughs> I've been asked to present the charismatic view of the kingdom. I'm a little disadvantaged here because I'm not quite sure what the charismatic view of the kingdom is. Like Greg, uh, I would like to issue a little disclaimer about the label charismatic because it means it's so broad, it means so many things to different people. And I think it might be helpful if I began by saying uh, a couple of things that does not mean to me, a couple of things I do not believe. I have a great deal of appreciation for my charismatic and Pentecostal brothers, and I have some significant areas of agreement with them. But here are some areas that I disagree with, and not all charismatic or Pentecostal teachers hold these areas, but some of them do. They're commonly associated with them, and here are some areas that I disagree with. First of all, I do not believe in the doctrine of subsequence that the Holy Spirit comes to you sometime after you've become a Christian. I do not think that the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes to you subsequently, and I do not think that it is evidenced by speaking in tongues. Although that may have happened in the uh, case of the apostles, I do not believe that's a paradigm for all Christian experience. I believe you're baptized with the Holy Spirit when you become a Christian, and it's the action that puts you in the body of Christ. Nor do I believe that the atonement guarantees healing in this life. I think all blessing comes out of the atonement, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee every blessing uh, in this life. There are some people that God will allow to undergo an unrelieved suffering for his own glory, Hebrews 11.35b and following, the people he did not uh, relieve or give victory to. And second, uh, or lastly, I would not agree uh, to the importance that is frequently given by some people to the gift of tongues or argue that everyone ought to have the gift of tongues. Now having said that, I believe the kingdom of God is the rule of God, and I believe the primary way the kingdom of God or the rule of God is expressed in between the two advents is in bringing men and women into conformity with the image of Christ. Now primarily for me, this means loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving one another uh, as we love ourselves or as God loves us. In addition to the passion and affection that goes with love or that expresses love, I believe the chief ways that this love is manifested are in humility, uh, as we deal with one another, humility before God. Psalm 138.6 says that God is intimate with the lowly, with the humble, but he knows the proud from afar off. And to just permit me a little homiletical exhortation here, there's a danger that a number of us face who deal in knowledge and, and uh, minister in a classroom face all the time. And that is the tendency toward pride and toward modeling pride before students, mocking those we disagree with, uh, making fun of their views. We set a model uh, of pride rather than humility, and we're precluding intimacy with God whenever we do that. I've been guilty of that uh, throughout my teaching career. Secondly, I think that the love of God is chiefly manifested in not only in humility, but in purity. And by this, I don't mean simple outward obedience, uh, simply resisting sin with the will, but a state of heart in which one no longer desires sin, a state of heart in which one is repulsed by it. And much of the church today is not operating under the rule of God here because it's believing a lie. Much of the church today believes that Christ died to save us from sin, 
but that his blood can't really change us or transform us. I find, uh, just by way of example, I find men throughout the church who believe they may be able to resist adultery, but they will have to go on living with lust. I find, uh, especially in the area of the country I live now, many who are homosexuals who find after they become a Christian they can refrain from the acts, but they feel like they're condemned to go on with their homosexual desires forever. And that's not the kind of purity I think the rule of God institutes or offers us. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient to save us and to transform us. In fact, that would be my third point. The Spirit's application of the blood of Christ is the sufficient or effective way in which man is saved and conformed to the image of Christ. Now, this would be, I think, the charismatic part. This would be a fourth point. The role of the miraculous, specifically the sign gifts, miraculous healings, and, and so on. I believe they have uh, four purposes or four functions in the kingdom. Why did they happen in the first place? Well, I would appeal to the passage that Dr. Bonson quoted at the beginning, 1 John 3, 8. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And uh, sickness and demons, death, are not the works, ultimately, of the Heavenly Father. They were not in the Garden of Eden. They will be taken out of heaven. They are put on a par, or on a general level, with uh, sicknesses and demons, with uh, death in Luke 9, 10, and Matthew 10. So when he comes, he encounters these things, and he triumphs over them, because ultimately they are enemies of the kingdom. That's not to say that every disease is a product of a demon. It's not to say that the Father, our Heavenly Father, can't use sickness to conform people to his image. He can use demons to discipline people. He sent a demonic tormentor to one of his favorite apostles in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. But it is to say, ultimately, these things are enemies of the kingdom and they will not be found in the final state. A second purpose for the, for the gifts, for the miraculous, really for the miraculous rather than the spiritual gifts, is the authenticating function. They authenticate the person of the Lord Jesus and the message about the Lord Jesus. This is Matthew 11, 1 to 6, and about 20 other texts in the New Testament. In connection with this, they open doors for evangelism. This is uh, Acts 9, 35, after the healing of Aeneas. It says, all who heard about that, and Lydda and Sharon came to the Lord. And that Acts 9, 42, uh, many people in Joppa after the resurrection uh, or the raising of Dorcas uh, turned to the Lord after they heard that. Those miracles open doors for evangelism. And thirdly, there's a doxological purpose for miracles. Lazarus was raised from the dead. John 11:4 tells us that God might be glorified and the Son of God might be glorified thereby. And fourthly, there's the purpose of compassion and mercy. A number of miracles in the New Testament were done not to prove that Jesus was Christ, but the statement of the text is he had compassion on the people and he healed all their sick. This is Matthew 14, 13 to 14. A statement about mercy, him healing out of mercy, Luke 18, 35 to 43. So because miracles and healings were broader in purpose than just the authenticating function, because they bring glory to God, because they express his compassion and mercy, I would expect to see those continue in, in the uh, time between the two advents. That doesn't mean that I would expect they have to continue with the same intensity that they did in the first century, or that they couldn't surpass what they uh, uh, achieved in the first century. Now lastly, the eschatological question. As we near the second advent, I expect two things to occur simultaneously. I expect to see what Dr. Bonson was talking about, the perfecting of the church, the maturing of the church, 
And some of the texts I would add to the ones he quoted are Ephesians 4, 11 to 13, where we find the church in verse 13 coming to the full measure of the stature of Christ. Or the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, uh, 20 to 23, where he prays that the church, that those of us in the church may be as one, even as the Father and the Son are as one. I expect that prayer to be answered. It has not been answered yet in history, and I expect it to be answered before he comes back. This leads me to believe that there is a gulf between what the church what the church is right now and what God intends for it to be still in history, this side of the eternal state. I would differ with Dr. Bonson in saying that I believe this is going to happen in a rather cataclysmic way rather than through a gradual process. The second thing that I would uh, expect to, to see is that simultaneously is a falling away of the nominal church. And I don't have any questions at this point. Uh, I'll wait till later. As you've seen, our time constraints mean that our papers must be very brief and to the point, and so I will make my presentation of a reform view uh, as a concise presentation of what has uh, been considered the majority of prevailing consensus of what the reformers and those who follow them have held on the subject before us now seeking to adduce the scriptural line of argument for the particular point that we may be uh, setting forth at that time and citing from time to time one of the great reform confessions. It's the setting for this paper is a panel in which alternative views are being presented. It seemed appropriate to have some interaction with those other views, hopefully always in a loving way. Uh, in this my initial presentation and thus hopefully focusing on and furthering our discussion together. And so now to the paper. At his first advent, our Lord presents the redemptive kingdom as present in a new and mighty way by saying that the time is fulfilled, that the kingdom is at hand, and calling on hearers to repent and believe in the gospel. Those of you who heard Dr. Beasley Murray will remember those citations from Mark 115, the parallel of Matthew 4, and also that different but similar account of Jesus uh, in the synagogue in Luke 4. Although the kingdom is presented as new and now present, Jesus later speaks of continuity when he says that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, he's addressing the Jewish religious leaders, and given to a nation producing the fruit of it in Matthew 21, 43. Thus we realize that the kingdom is new and at hand in a similar sense to which the Apostle John can say that the old commandment to love is new. They remember in looking at uh, 1 John 2.8, he says that it is true in him, referring to Christ, and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. We may use that analogy we may say then that the kingdom is due in the sense that Christ, at his first advent, accomplishes redemption by his death for sins past, present, and future, as Paul teaches us in Romans 3, and by his resurrection and ascension makes available a fuller manifestation of the Spirit's presence and power, as our Lord assures us in Luke 24 and again in Acts 1. Thus, although Reformed theology refers to the period from Jesus onward as that of the New Testament or the New Covenant, 
It does so with the recognition that the gospel is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham, as Paul says so tellingly in the third chapter of Galatians. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts the matter thusly, There are not therefore two covenants of grace, differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations in its chapter 7, section 6. As we've said above, Christ accomplished the basis for the redemptive kingdom, uh, for the forgiveness of sins past, present, and future, by the entirety of his earthly life and ministry, but especially by the culminating work of his death and resurrection. Because his life and ministry are the great final word of God, as the writer of Hebrews says in his first chapter in the first three verses, his first advent is accompanied by a great display of supernatural power, which he himself says are indicators of who he is and of the message to be believed. He says that, as you remember, in John 10, 37 and 38, if I do not the works of my Father, do not believe me. And if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Thus, after 400 years in which God has not spoken to his people or performed mighty works, Jesus breaks upon the scene with the definitive final words from God as God's Son. Uh, let me say parenthetically that uh, in understanding both his action and the words about him in Hebrews 1, we need to realize those definitive final words are brought to their full expression with the apostolic explanation he promised in John 16. And thus as he breaks upon the scene as God's son of delivering the final words and the final work, he accomplishes the once for all redemption and it is accompanied by many displays of God's power, demonstrating who he is and the reality of his message. Now the truly clear understanding of that message would have to await Christ's death and resurrection, and the special equipping work of the Spirit to enable Christ's special and unique spokesman to give that understanding in what is now the epistles of the New Testament. Our Lord made provision for this special group and its task in the words of John 16, 12 through 13. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. So it is, that Paul speaks of the apostles as recipients of God's revelation for the people in Ephesians 3, verses 4 and 5. And therefore God has said about them previously that they are the foundation with Christ himself as the cornerstone of the church in Ephesians 2.20. Because of their foundational and once-for-all character, the New Testament church does not replace the twelve apostles as they die off with the special exception being the traitor Judas, who as such needed to be replaced. With the apostles as the foundation of the church are listed prophets in Ephesians 2.20. And thus the reformers referred to them 
and the attendant special supernatural gifts, prophesying, tongue speaking, raising people from the dead, the special gift of healing people by a touch or a word, and so forth, as extraordinary, in distinction from the continuing spiritual gifts and offices which continue in the church and which may thus be designated as ordinary, for example, the gift of teaching. The Westminster Confession of Faith states the matter succinctly when it affirms that the Holy Scripture is most necessary since those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. Chapter 1, Section 1. As we live beyond the foundational period of the church, we live without foundational acts continuing to take place, but still in the strength of the redeeming work of Christ working in us, the superstructure of the church, and applied to us in ordinary supernatural ways through the work of the Holy Spirit. Thus people are called into the redemptive kingdom through the presentation of the gospel and by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. The response called for is repentance and faith, which receives Christ and his salvation by calling upon him as one's personal Lord. Classic statement, of course, as you know, being in Romans 10, also seen in Acts 16.31, and may I say parenthetically that nearly every passage in the New Testament presents the confession of Jesus as Lord as the confession required. Upon such conversion, the converted receive the Holy Spirit, as we see in Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 12, and begins to enjoy and appropriate all the benefits of Christ's redemption. The true believer is forthwith justified and adopted and lives henceforth as a child of God. He is immediately made a new creation and a definitive, albeit not final and complete, work of sanctification has begun. He has died to sin and then made alive to God in Christ. He or she, I'm using he in the traditional way in which it's done with nothing implied about that, he or she will indeed struggle with sin until he dies and is glorified. But he does so as one who knows that sin is now a contradiction of his new life and existence. His ongoing sanctification is based upon the righteousness and life of Christ, transforming every aspect of his being, including his thinking, feeling, and acting. This ongoing sanctification is accomplished by the Christian actively appropriating and acting upon God's grace and Christ within him, by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Paul puts the matter tersely when he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. Although the Christian is not under the curse of the law, which Christ has borne and removed, nor under the shadows of the ceremonial law, which have been fulfilled in Christ, the ethical standard which he is called to obey and to be conformed to is the moral law of God, given in both testaments and seen particularly in the foundational Ten Commandments. Thus the Apostle Paul indicates that the redeeming work of Christ was accomplished, quote, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Notice the Greek word used there, the Greek preposition, 
and the implication by the parallelism as to what that means, who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit, end of quote Romans 8.4. In the ethical section of Romans, he cites a number of the Ten Commandments and then states that love fulfills that law in Romans 13.9 and 10. He also applies the teaching of the Old Testament against muzzling the working ox as demonstrating the principle of equity and justice, the principle of equity and justice being namely that ministers ought also to be paid for their labors in 1 Corinthians 9, 8-11. Although the Reformed Church had recognized an application of the principles of some of the so-called civil legislation of the Old Testament, take for example the passage just cited, it at the same time recognizes that the legislation for a theocracy, which we may describe as a conjoined church and state, was not intended for a church without the right of civil enforcement, or for the various non-theocratic states and nations which are not intended to be manifestations of God's direct rule on earth, as was the theocracy. Thus, for example, the divine sanction of the theocracy put to death one guilty of a certain sin is in the New Testament applied to putting the guilty one out of the church which has a similar effect in this new and different setting you put the person to death you rid him from the covenantal community altogether because the covenantal community has both natures spiritual and physical in the theocracy you put him out of the church he is considered as one dead to the church and to God at that moment, and thus the same effect is taken. Notice how this works out in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13, especially verses 12 and 13, with verse 13 quoting and applying the Old Testament passage, such as Deuteronomy 7, 17, which in the Old Testament referred to putting the person to death. Paul says, you are fulfilling that now when you put him out of the church. In view of the aforementioned distinctions, the Westminster Confession of Faith states that the sundry judicial laws given that theocratic body politic, and now I quote, expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof they require. Chapter 19 Section 4. In conclusion, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone, conscious of the power and presence of the redeeming work of Christ through the supernatural but ordinary work of the Holy Spirit, the Reformed community, thankful for its new life in Christ, seeks to live a life obedient to God's law through the grace and righteousness of Christ in a world still beset by sin, sickness, and death, expectantly looking forward to the glory and transformation that shall yet be revealed. Thank you. It's kind of difficult to uh, try to speak for a contemporary dispensationalist, I think, but we'll do our best. Uh, I want to make one point of clarification. I guess I would probably represent what has been labeled this year in terms of dispensationalism, progressive dispensationalism, 
but for you that may not have followed this so-called progress, uh, <laughs> I just want to clarify that, uh, in my mind at least, there has been a considerable shift, and so I'd like to mention that at the beginning before I uh, attempt at least to uh, describe how I see the kingdom as present. Traditional dispensationalism, traditional dispensationalism taught that the Messianic kingdom of Old Testament prophecy was offered through Christ at the first advent. Because of his rejection by Israel, the Messianic kingdom was completely postponed until Christ's second coming. In the present intervening time, there was a mystery form of the kingdom present, which is described especially in the mystery parables. This kingdom, however, was not conceived of as part of the Old Testament prophesied kingdom of the Messiah. Now, contemporary dispensationalists, for the most part, it seems to me, have made a major, sh major shift in this picture. They now acknowledge that although the kingdom did not come in fulfillment of the complete Old Testament prophecy of Christ's kingdom, it did come in some sense through the work of Christ at the first advent. With many interpreters, dispensationalists today understand that the fulfillment of the Messianic Kingdom prophecies, which in the Old Testament were simply associated with what seemed to be one coming of the Messiah, are in the New Testament now divided around his two comings. The primary emphasis in the New Testament seems to be still on the futurity of the Kingdom. This is the dominant teaching of Jesus following his rejection, as illustrated, for example, in the parable of the nobleman in Luke 19. It is also the primary emphasis associated with the kingdom concept in the teaching of the early church. The kingdom is mentioned as our inheritance, and many references to that effect. Paul says in Acts 14, through much tribulation, we must still enter the kingdom. But along with this teaching of the future of the kingdom, it is also present. The working of the kingdom described in the mystery parables depicts the presence of the messianic kingdom in the world today. The seed that is sown beginning with the teaching of Jesus and his disciples and continuing in the proclamation of the church is identified as the word of the kingdom. The kingdom can be entered. When Paul tells the Roman church that the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, he expects these spiritual qualities of the kingdom to be a present reality in their experience. Thus, while the kingdom is primarily a future eschatological concept, its dynamic reaches back into this present inter-advent age. Now, how we are to expect its manifestation, let me try to summarize around two major thoughts. First of all, the kingdom is present in the power for personal, spiritual, and here I might be misunderstood, but I will say inner salvation. Several lines of argument may be noted in support of this understanding. Christ's so-called Great Commission sets forth the task of the church for this age. If we assume that the power of the kingdom is operative through the church in fulfillment of this commission, then the nature of the commission may be viewed as the nature in which the kingdom manifests itself today in the church. 
While the most common expression of the commission in Matthew 28 does not clearly express the content of the evangelizing ministry, Luke defines it as the proclamation of repentance for forgiveness of sins to all nations. When we proceed to the record of the early church in Acts, we find Peter, in obedience to this commission, proclaiming on the day of Pentecost, repent for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The message of the apostolic teaching in Acts is on several occasions summarized as the preaching or testifying concerning the kingdom of God, sometimes adding the name of Jesus Christ along with the kingdom. While his teaching concerning the kingdom included its future coming, the focus of its present manifestation is seen both in the messages of the apostles in Acts and in their epistolary writings was on a present spiritual salvation of redemption and the forgiveness of sins in Christ. This is clearly evident in one passage where Paul places his ministry of testifying solemnly of the grace, or the gospel I should say, of the grace of God. He places that in parallel with preaching the kingdom. Thus, if the ministry of the church in fulfillment of Christ's commission is an expression of the presence of the kingdom, then the focus of the operation of that kingdom during this age is on salvation in the personal, spiritual realm and not in the realms of the material or what we might call socio-political. A second argument in support of the spiritual manifestation of the kingdom today comes from the express teaching of the apostles concerning the kingdom. In Romans 14, 17, Paul's application of the kingdom is in terms of the spiritual qualities of righteousness, peace, and joy through the Spirit. Our present experience of being transferred into the kingdom of Christ in Colossians 1, 13 seems to me to be immediately explained in verse 14 by the statement, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Even the reference to the power of the kingdom in 1 Corinthians 4.20 is in a context which emphasizes the power of God in the gospel of the crucified Christ. While it might be argued that this includes some manifestation of power and signs and wonders, we agree with Gordon Fee that the context of the power of kingdom reign, for Paul expressly denies any present reign of the believer earlier in the same chapter. The believer's kingdom reign was always future for the apostle. These explicit teachings concerning the believer's present involvement with the kingdom, therefore, reveal a presence in spiritual power for the salvation of the inner person. A third realm of evidence regarding the present manifestation of the kingdom may be found in the prayers and benedictions of the apostles for the church. Surely, they desired for the church all of the kingdom blessings presently available. Looking at the prayers for the church, we find prayer for power, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, prayer for the power of the spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in the heart, prayer for the knowledge of God and the hope of his calling. Paul also prays for knowledge of the surpassing greatness of his power. But as Grunman explains, it is the power which allows believers, and here we quote, to maintain against all appearances to the contrary the hope which they cherish. 
The frequent benedictions and expressions for God's blessing expressed by the apostles focus on the desire for growth in knowledge and grace, an increase in love and good works, and in general, increasing sanctification. This desire for God's blessing in the church may be summed up in concern for the power of the kingdom to be operative in the three great marks of the church, faith, hope, and love. Finally, the teaching of the New Testament in relation to the fulfillment of the New Covenant reveals that only the spiritual dimensions associated with that covenant are applied to the church today. According to the Old Testament prophecy, the New Covenant included, along with spiritual regeneration, a variety of material blessings, such as the restoration of Israel to the land, the fertility of the land, material prosperity, peace among nations, and so forth. Nowhere in the New Testament are these material blessings applied to the present. Rather, we find only the blessings of forgiveness and sin, of sins and the gift of the Spirit associated with the present fulfillment of that covenant. What I'm saying is wherever that's quoted, you only get the segment that talks about forgiveness of sins and the presence of the Spirit. A second characteristic of the present kingdom manifestation is, is that it is through weakness. Far from giving believers today the kingdom power that will someday crush all its enemies, the church today, as Lab has said, is like other men at the mercy of the powers of this world. Though Christ has overcome the enemy and believers are overcomers spiritually in him, the enemy is yet given provisional power to overcome the saints in Revelation 11, verse 7. Thus, care must be taken to distinguish the arena and expression of kingdom power promised for today. The primary manifestation of present kingdom power is through outer weakness, even as the power of the kingdom was manifest at the cross. Now, looking at these characteristics, we have already touched in some ways the way it is not manifest. Maybe it would be helpful just to summarize these to sharpen it a bit. First, the kingdom is not manifest in the outward socio-political realm. Now, let me quickly say, this is not to say that the inward personal transformation of the individual by the spiritual power of the kingdom will not have its ramifications in this outward realm. It is only to say that the promises of the prophesied redemptive kingdom, which speak of God's saving power bringing peace among the peoples of the earth are not applied to the present age. Perhaps the best picture to describe the present situation in this realm is the parable of the nobleman who goes into the far country to receive a kingdom. As that nobleman, Christ has gone to heaven and has received the kingdom or kingdom authority. But with Lad, Marshall, Ellis, and others, we conclude he will not exercise his reign over that kingdom until his return. The realm of Caesar, in distinction to the realm of God, continues until the establishment of the theocracy of Christ. Secondly, the kingdom is not manifesting itself in the promise for general bodily health. This in no way denies the possibility of miraculous healings today, and I would say that would be an expression of kingdom power. It is only to say again that the promises of long life and health associated with the Messianic Kingdom prophecies are never taught as applicable to the present age by the apostles. 
Thus, healing on the basis of the presence of the kingdom today is not promised to faith in the general sense that the kingdom provisions of forgiveness of sins and the indwelling spirit are promised to everyone who will believe. To sum up, as indicated earlier, we understand the prophecies of the redemptive messianic kingdom to be split in their fulfillment around the two comings of Christ. And here's where I probably disagree with some. This split is not simply one of degrees where all of the elements of the kingdom are to be manifest today only in a lesser degree than the consummation when Christ returns. The power of the kingdom is not here to approximate all of the effects of the kingdom. It is not here to empower us to inaugurate the kingdom reign, but rather to witness to its coming. We are here to witness to the past victory of the king over sin and his coming again to judge this sinful world and establish his glorious righteous reign. According to the New Testament, this is done primarily as the power of the kingdom manifests itself in the proclamation of the gospel and is incarnated by the spirit in the lives of believers in the kingdom principles of love righteousness, peace, and joy, and I might say incarnate, perhaps first in the community of the church, and then to those outside in the world. Well, I'll ask each of our respondents, our time is uh, getting away from us and fast, and I thought perhaps to just respond in a few minutes if they care to, or perhaps they would like some questions from the group. Greg, would you like to say something? Want to go in a different order? Well, however, how would you mend? Or maybe no order. So yeah. like it's yeah. Don't care for any response. How about you, Professor Knight? I'll pass. I think it would be best for our audience to give those. I think they'll probably pick up the same things. I well, you sort of uh, responded to each other as you spoke very well. <laughs> each of you spoke very well. Well, then I'll respond. <laughs> you can't take since all I couldn't, minutes. Since I could, oh, I thought they were giving that over to me. I, I couldn't respond to everybody in advance because I don't have the gift of prophecy, so... <laughs> I will um, take just a moment or two since I was the first one up, and then I, I would like to hear from the audience as well. Um, very quickly, I should say uh, to Dr. Knight that, um, as he would expect, our theological framework is essentially the same. Most of what he said there is precisely what, um, what I would have said as well. Uh, I would emphasize that um, we agree about the Westminster Confession of Faith applying the equity of the judicial laws of the Old Testament because um, often people think that the theonomic or reconstructionist point of view wants more than the equity. We don't. We simply want what the law taught there applied to our modern day and age. And we certainly do want to take account of all of those redemptive, historical, unique features of Israel uh, that are textually grounded, not written into or read into the text uh, by preconceived theological notions. Now, Dr. Knight doesn't do that, but um, there are some people that get into arguments with us who do. Uh, the area that we would probably want to get into a discussion of is to what degree the laws of Old Testament Israel had a political validity outside of Israel as well. 
And um, I'm just going to leave it to you to pick up the literature on that, my latest book, so forth, to read on that. Isaiah 24 says that all the nations have polluted the earth by breaking these laws. And in Hebrews 2, we read that the, even the penal sanctions of the Old Testament express the justice of God. Not simply the justice of God for a special, unique situation, but God's justice that will be the foundation even for the final judgment. But that would be the only minor point um, uh, with Dr. Knight that uh, Theonomus would want to talk about. Um, Dr. Deer, postmillennialists believe in miracles. I mean, I'm here today um, to make this presentation, and evangelicals are talking to one another, so we think God does wondrous things. We also think, we also think he does wondrous things in the outward order of creation by healing people and so forth. We would not, however, affirm that that is a continuing gift that is given to people. That is something that we can pray for and God does, in fact, do. Um, from my own apologetical standpoint, I have some doubt about the validity of relying on miracles to validate the message of Jesus. They do that, but of course, until a person has a different framework of thought, those miracles don't do anything. Luke 16, Jesus said, even if one rises from the dead, they won't believe if they've rejected Moses. Um, at the end of your um, short presentation, when you spoke of the maturation of the church, I was getting very excited. I thought, well, there's more common ground here for us. And I am excited because I, as I listen to my brothers here, I think there's a lot more commonality than many of you coming in today, I think, would have expected. However, when you say that the maturation will not be gradual, we would probably point to Isaiah 9 of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end and the mustard seed, the leaven, so forth, as images suggesting the gradualism of the kingdom. And the falling away, I wouldn't think, would be simultaneous with that, uh, in light of, at least of my reading of Revelation 20, that it's after the thousand years that Satan is loosed for a short period to bring the apostasy and persecuting power to its head. Um, and then finally, for Dr. Sosi, you said so many wonderful things, I don't know I hate to even have to sound like I'm disagreeing, but I would believe that the distinction between inner and outer in terms of the reign of Jesus Christ uh, in this world today is an artificial one. I, I think your intention is very good to honor the scripture and its focus and emphasis, which I think you have right, but I don't believe that we can restrict the kingdom of Jesus Christ simply to enter inner matters until he comes back to establish his theocratic kingdom on earth uh, the Bible does tell us in Revelation 2 and 3 that the church has promised to have uh, some kind of reign with Christ over the nations, that um, he is subduing his enemies even now before the final enemy is subdued, death, 1 Corinthians 15. And when we are to pray, thy will be done on earth, obviously God's will is violated in outward affairs of life, even socio-political affairs in this age. And so if we pray that God's will would be done, we ought to seek to do his will in socio-political matters as well. In 1 Corinthians 6.15, and then I'll end with this, Paul tells us that Jesus is presently the king of kings. He doesn't wait for the day that he will be king of kings. He presently is, and he even expresses that in outward physical affairs in this day. You remember how Herod was struck dead with worms because he took glory to himself when the people called him a god. 
uh, Jesus does uh, tread out the winepress of the wrath of God in history, and he will, he will consummate that wrath in the final day. So anyway, I think that's probably an artificial distinction, at least from our perspective, that the kingdom is inward but not outward in this age. Yes, I, I take back my uh, not wanting to respond. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I want to respond and I want to ask Dr. Bonson a question or so. Uh, I noticed that he had to go back to the Old Testament basically for these political outward uh, verses. And it's interesting to me that if you look at what the apostles spoke of, uh, they never spoke that way. Uh, as far as I know, I guess I'll leave that as a question and go to my next one. In other words, why are those verses not quoted on the lips of the apostles and given as part of the commission of the church, or at least the expectation of the church? Now, the next question is partly for my clarification. You talked about the kingdom involving it encompasses as far as sin and its consequences. If I'm not mistaken, you use Old Testament Israel as an example in terms of the will of God touching every area of life. Is this a theocracy? And then my next question, I was very happy to see that you were not going to use political power over the uh, recalcitrant, stubborn unbelievers. But if it's going to enter the realm of politics, which certainly the Old Testament did, would you pass a law to worship only Yahweh? Okay, the, uh, the first issue that you brought up is, allegedly I was quoting Old Testament, not New. In fact, I had quite a bit of New Testament citation. But I, I would be happy to do that. I think both post-millennialism and theonomic ethics can be shown from the New Testament alone which is wonderful because people think, you know, well, you guys are Old Testament legalists and so forth. Well, from my standpoint, you can shelve the Old Testament temporarily, and we'll just debate on the basis of the New Testament if you'd like. When, um, when Paul was at uh, Thessalonica, you remember that he had to flee. You remember that there was the accusation brought that these people turned the world upside down, preaching that there is another king, Caesar. I want to assure you, that on the internal interpretation of the kingship of Jesus Christ alone, there was no violation of Roman law. No one would have been persecuted for preaching that Jesus is king in your heart of hearts, but it has no outward effect on you, Caesar. Don't worry about that. They were persecuted because they believed that Caesar would answer to Jesus as well, and therefore he'd better stop persecuting Jesus' people, he'd better start doing justice and righteousness and all the rest. I believe that uh, 1 Timothy 6 that I cited very quickly, of course, is New Testament. Jesus is presently the King of Kings. In Revelation 13, we don't want to get into a long protracted debate over who the beast is, past, present, future, and so forth. But this much is clear in the literature to all of us, whatever your uh, answer to who the beast is. The beast opposes the people of God and wants his name written on the forehead and upon the hand which is conspicuous Old Testament imagery where the law of God was to be written on the forehead and on the hand, the beast will take its place. Both in the 12th and the 14th chapters of Revelation, those who oppose the beast are described as people who have the faith of Jesus and the commandments of God. 
And so, no, I would argue for the political implications of the gospel from the New Testament. Of course, the, the Old Testament enriches that. Of course, the beauty that's there. In a strange way, premillennialists and postmillennialists are are brothers under the skin. We really do wish to see the outward glory of God's kingdom in this world. The difference, as I understand it, is that we believe it will be brought about through the spiritual agency of the preaching of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, and we do not look for Jesus to come back and with violence subdue the earth in that way. He is the Prince of Peace. The nations will flow into Mount Zion and there learn the law of God, and in learning to obey God, will make peace with each other. Now, of course, that's a beautiful picture that's not going to be fully seen in perfection in this world, but it is that which we work toward. You had a second question about um, would we pass laws that call for worshiping Yahweh alone? And I think it would be best, not because it's an embarrassing question, but because it would go into a lot of detail that I'm not prepared to do, uh, to do a study of what the Old Testament itself required in that matter. I have a whole chapter in this book in which I try to point out, I think many people have a misunderstanding of what was allowed in terms of religious freedom in the Old Testament as well. Um, however, the theonomic approach to the law of God states that if Christ or the coming of the kingdom has altered the application of those laws, that's fine. This is not somehow a preconceived love for Old Testament Israel and its culture, and therefore we're going to hold on to it no matter what. If Dr. Sosi has exegetical basis for differing with the law of God at that point, I would agree with him and join with him. Now, finally, to scratch for your itching, though, I don't believe that we need to pass laws that call for worshiping Jehovah alone, and I don't believe that that's what would be required even in the Old Testament. What you had in the Old Testament was the forbidding of blaspheming the name of God and seduction to idolatry. And I believe that Craigie is right in his commentary when he comments on that, that that amounted to the undermining of the law order of Israel because Yahweh was the foundation of its laws. He sees that then as an application to modern rebellion and the uh, attempt to overthrow constitutional authority and so forth. He may be right, he may be wrong, but we're not going to settle that this afternoon. I would say, do you want one more line? Okay. I would say that um, as Christians, we should, um, we should aim to have a government that honors Jesus Christ the Savior in the way that Psalm 2 tells us. All the kings and judges of the earth are to serve Jehovah with fear and kiss the Son lest they perish in the way. Well, it's interesting presentations. Would someone like to ask a question of one of the panelists or make a comment or so? Anyone? Yes, sir. We're not worshiping in the catacombs today. Well, you know, there's a, it's a funny thing. Um, uh, get America out of the picture. That's very depressing. What we have um, in the case of many post-millennialists today is the strange pessimism of those who are so optimistic, you know. And uh, that's true of me, too. I'm very pessimistic. We live in a very bad age. There's no doubt about it. I mean, you'd have to believe in Santa Claus, you know, to, to believe that things are going really well today 
for righteousness, for taking care of poverty or the poor or justice in the courts or sexual purity or the gospel being believed or money being given for missions. I mean, what do you want to look at? What barometer do you want? It's very bad. But as a post-millennialist, my hopes are not tied to this age or to this country. My hopes are tied to the power of the Holy Spirit. And when I do look at the long haul of history, that's why I answered the way I did originally. We're not worshiping in the catacombs. The gospel has gone to many nations. It has reformed many societies. The kind of uh, charitable relief that you see given around the world is for the most part the influx of Christianity, not Islam, not Hinduism, and so forth. And so, yeah, I do think overall we have seen improvement. But uh, if you read the post-millennial writers, you'll see that every one of them, the Hodges at Princeton, uh, Kick in our own generation, so forth, they all grant that there are ups and downs throughout history for the kingdom, and the overall thrust is that of upward amelioration of... Uh, our sinful inclinations and unbelief in this world. And I think you can see that upward inclination. There was no ETS meeting with 600 people in the year 100. So yeah, there's some improvement. Um, I would like to ask a local red, Dr. Bonson, there are people who are worshiping in There are, yes. We are not, is what I was saying. Not true. Yeah. And I would like to know where in the world that the kingdom of God is being more realized now than it was in 18th, 20th century. And my uh, question, uh, my second question is, does Jesus now rule or will he ever rule for the rod of iron? And what would be the meaning of the rod of iron? Right. Um, the question that you ask is really in debate. We call it a baiting question. I think you've made your point rhetorically. I don't need to play into that by trying to play church history with you and so forth. If you do not believe that what we have seen, say, in Puritan New England uh, and the Great Awakening and other places around the world is an improvement over the condition of Christians in the catacombs in Rome, I don't know what I can say to you. It does seem to me rather obvious. Uh, it also seems to me that we haven't reached the new heavens and the new earth. And many times post-millennialists, I think, get slam-dunked by people because they take us as saying, what we're going to have is heaven on earth now. And then you say, well, where's heaven on earth? Well, of course, we don't believe in heaven on earth. And, uh, you know, you, you, you really have to read these classical theologians, read, read Warfield or Hodge or, or others or Samington or, or Brown and so forth, and you'll see that they, they were very realistic about the course of history and so forth. But they also believed in the Pentecostal power, you know, that accompanies the gospel. They do see that nations can be converted, and that there can be changes in the outward order of society and so forth. Um, and now I, I got started and I forgot the second part of what the you asked. The rod of iron. Yes, I certainly do believe in the rod of iron rule of Jesus. You saw it first expressed in AD 70 when uh, those who had apostatized from God's covenant were destroyed as Jesus said he would destroy them. That is one of his most devastating historical judgments. Jacob has never suffered like that. You know, and that's a very important point. And he continues to, uh, to tread out the, uh, the grapes of wrath. You know, when I first encountered post-millennial optimism, you know, I, I felt like probably just about everyone else in this room, I said, give me a break. I read the newspapers. I know this can't happen. But you know, about the same time, 
um, I was a study of sociopolitical theory, and I would have told you, in fact, I probably would have bet every bit of my family's uh, small uh, fortune in this world, that there is no way the Berlin Wall would fall in my lifetime or that uh, Soviet Russia would repudiate the Communist Party. Now, I'm not trying to say that's the kingdom of Jesus Christ and all of its glory there, but I'm saying we don't know what God can do in history. He does marvelous things. And Jesus is treading out the winepress of the wrath of God, and nations do suffer for their persecuting the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's just they don't do it as... Um, well, as automatically and as uh, predictably with calculation in the way that we would like, and so we lose heart. But I do believe Jesus is working in history to do that. But I think we need to understand that rod of iron is far more vicious than anything we expect because it's going to come to expression in the consummation when Jesus will then finally say, depart from me, into a place where people will die in agony and there will be no relief. That brother back there. I would not use the commission of the disciples for the commission of the church. I would see God doing miracles in his sovereign will. I do not think he told the church, as in the Great Commission, to uh, preach the gospel of the kingdom, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. I think he told us to preach the gospel as we usually think of it. But God, in his mercy, uh, is free to do miraculous things in answer to prayer. I would not be averse to seeing where Satan uh, does overt manifestations. I would not be averse to understanding God to make some displays of power as well. I just do not see it as a general, and neither does Jack Deere. See, it's not part of the uh, gospel per se. I like to make a, a, a rather clean division between what is really promised to us for faith today. And I think forgiveness and the indwelling spirit are promises of the kingdom that are available. But there are promises and predictions with regard to bodily health and so forth. I do not see those generally available. So it's probably a matter of degree and the verses that we would use to support uh, miraculous powers today. Yes, sir. Question for Dr. Jarrett. You made a reference uh, to something a little ambiguous there about uh, the visible unity of the church, part of the kingdom of the end of the age. And that came up sounding to me an awful no, a little, a little louder. Yeah, I, I want you to do the microphone. Okay. Stand up. Stand up, sure. You made a remark about the, uh, the visible unity of the church at the end of the age. I think that was correct. And, uh, that came off sounding to me a little bit like latter rain doctrine. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with a prophecy of David DePlessis some 30 or 40 years ago, uh, who was one of the primary figures in the latter rain movement, talking about the unifying of all Christians together under this uh, charismatic movement and actually connecting this with Roman Catholicism. My question for you is, could you clarify what this visible unity means and what, is it, uh, what kind of implications would it have in terms of denominational battles, uh, 
Roman Catholicism versus Protestant, Franklin versus New Protestantism, what about doctrinal purity and what kind of a role does that play? And uh, to what extent does uh, the latter rain movement and the manifest sons of God, other kinds of movements in that stream have to do with this? Yeah. The question is, I made a reference to the unity of the church based on John 17, also in Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. What, what does that have to do, or I think maybe the primary thrust is what's the relationship of that observation I made to latter rain doctrine? And then you ask questions I have no way of answering. How will this be worked out in the uh, future? Uh, first of all, I don't know what it has to do with latter rain doctrine because I'm not a student of latter rain doctrine. I didn't know latter rain doctrine emphasized the uh, unity of that. And by, I do know that latter rain was a, a form of a, a, not really a charismatic movement, it's prior to the charismatic movement in the uh, 40s or 50s. But beyond that, I don't know much about its teaching or uh, doctrine. My statement was simply, I'm, when I read John 17, 20 to 23, Jesus prays for the unity of the church, and he's talking about an extraordinary unity, that they may be one as we are one. My tendency when I read that would be to limit that to the heavenly state and think that's the only time we'll have that kind of unity. But he doesn't limit it to the heavenly state. He says that the world may see and believe so, and then uh, Ephesians 4, 11, 12, and 13 has a similar statement in verse 13, until we all come to the unity of the faith of the Son of God. My, my statement was simply, when I look around the church, I don't see anything that could be remotely described as that kind of unity. I see many of us, while, while we hold all of the basic teaching of the New Testament, the deity of Jesus, substitutionary atonement, justification by faith, the virgin birth, the inerrancy of scripture, the uh, bodily resurrection, the bodily return of our holy, all that in common, many of us treat one another like enemies. And so I don't see our present state approaching anything near the unity he's describing there. Now what form, and, and, and my second point is then, I believe that prayer is going to be answered. It's unthinkable to me that the Lord will not answer the high priestly prayer of the Son. So I look for that to be answered. Now you say, what way will that be answered? Will the nominations be done away with? Will there be some kind of, uh, will there be a, a something and doctrine uh, beyond those essentials? I, I really don't know that. I just know there's a unity coming that we don't have now based on those uh, clear texts. Go ahead. Uh, to Dr. Sosi, uh, I uh, confess that I'm uh, perplexed as to how to identify a dispensationalist these days. <laughs> With this emphasis we've heard today several times now from several speakers, including uh, Dr. Beasley Murray, etc., uh, on realized eschatology and significant uh, dispensational um, descriptions of realized fulfillment. Uh, in what particular, what essence, does dispensationalism, or at least your brand, whatever that may be, uh, differ from uh, the classic premillennialism of, say, a John Bunyan or a John Gill, or uh, more recently a George Elton Ladd? Let me say, I'm glad you asked that question and didn't take it from some of the recent books. But anyway, I will, uh, as far as I am concerned, and I have no penchant for the name, and I think some of my colleagues feel the same way. The only thing that tends to identify so-called progressive dispensationalists, I think, amounts to, how shall I put this, it amounts to a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies uh, taken at fairly face value, which entails a future for Israel according to those prophecies. 
And if that's not a dispensationalist, you can call me something else. <laughs> but I suspect that entails also the denial that the church is new Israel. So that we do not deny unity of the people of God. We simply want to affirm the fulfillment of the remainder of those prophecies with regard to the Messianic Kingdom, which entails a future for the nation of Israel according to those prophecies. Yes. yes. I, I wonder how your different perspectives have, have something concretely to say about things like this, how I exercise my responsibilities as a parent, uh, how I exercise concretely my responsibilities as a citizen, uh, as a husband, and if, if, there's, if there is a difference, I'd, I'd like to probably hear what it might be. And if there isn't, I might um, want to ask, uh, what's the point <laughs> of, of the disagreement? I, I, what I'm trying to get at, uh, perhaps it's less quickly, is, is um, where is the concrete difference in the way I go about living my responsibility as a Christian? Which one do you want to answer that? Uh, anybody want to Well, I'll, I'll try to begin. Uh, you said, how should you act as a parent, as a person in the political arena, and so on. Well, as a parent, you should recognize that the Ten Commandments are applicable, uh, as did the Apostle Paul, and recognize that the promise uh, seemingly given to the possession of Canaan is now applied to this world and life, interestingly enough, long life and good success for your children to obey. And so you... Uh, teach them to obey the Ten Commandments, and you point them to Jesus Christ as the source and power of the strength that they need. Uh, I think uh, that emphasis on the Ten Commandments might distinguish me from perhaps one person on the panel. I don't know. Uh, I want my kids to obey the Ten Commandments. All right, well, I, I wasn't thinking of this one. <laughs> Let me go on from that point, if I may. Uh, I know Greg is not going to be the one who says I. <laughs> so we'll, uh, Sounds and, good to me, And George. I suspect that Bob also thinks that the Pauline statement of Ephesians 6 still applies. But classical uh, dispensationalism has made that distinction, and I was trying to deal with classical, not always knowing where I am with progressive, and rejoicing, <laughs> and rejoicing in the progress, and I don't mean that flippantly. In the political arena, it seems to me from my perspective, that I, don't, uh, that I work for the impact of righteousness and peace on the world around me, but I do not make my expectation larger than the scripture does. So I, I tell to my children and myself and the watching world not to fault Christianity or the gospel because it has not yet nor probably will this side of Christ's return bring about the promises which will yet nevertheless be fulfilled. Their expectancy is right, but they have the timing wrong. And that's it. I think that gives a healthy perspective. I can therefore talk to people who talk about, as Paul rebuked the people about reigning now, and saying, no, we suffer now. I can talk to people who say we're healthy now, and I can say, no, we're decaying now. 
except when God specially answers prayer. And it gives me a great perspective about all the questions of life, because you know how the kingdom operates between the Adventists. I was going to suggest that if the question was, how do we differ, and then what's the significance of the difference, um, I'll be corrected, I'm sure, if I'm wrong here. One of the ironies to me is I don't think practically there is a lot of difference. You know, we have different expectations, we have different timing and so forth, that's been referred to. But you ask about the family, and uh, I'm not a betting man, but I'd bet you dollars to donuts that if you were to take each one of the four of us in a room and ask concrete questions about raising your children and so forth, you'd probably get essentially the same answers from us. We talk about politics. Now, it would appear that evangelicals are really split on this issue. But um, I'm not so sure practically that we are. Dr. Sosi came the closest to being, I think, in direct antithesis to what I was saying about outward involvement. But then, and I say this, and I, I love him, this is not being critical. In one sense, he takes back with one hand what he threw out when he says, well, we are to be involved as witness. And I'm saying, okay, and then what should our witness be? It should be to justice, right? And so forth. And where do we learn about justice? We learn about it in God's word. And then we want to talk about the whole Bible and those sorts of things. I don't believe that there is going to be a huge difference in terms of our belief that Christians have to be involved in these areas. There are going to be exegetical differences and so forth. I have a person who wrote a book once about what a curse my theological point of view is, you know, theonomy. I found it ironic that this book was written and in the book itself comes right back around and says, well, there's so much good and wisdom to be found in the law of God. Of course, we need to learn from that. Now, we have theological differences, but you get out on the streets and all of us, I trust, are going to vote against abortion. You know, all of us are going to say homosexuality should not be, you know, an acceptable lifestyle and so forth. I don't think the differences in practice are as big as what you hear when we talk theologically. Am I wrong or right? I would only comment without being extensive, I think that we're being hinted at that our time is up, but I would tend to agree with Dr. Knight, and I, the practical import, not so much for the family, but the question is, what is the real motive of our ministry? And I think that makes a difference. You really have to think about the real motive. I will do outward work to witness to God. My personal feeling is the mission of the church is much, quite similar to Jesus to witness to the Father. So I do not have hopes of transforming the uh, cultures of this world. I will work in them as a manifestation of the righteousness of God, but I think it makes a difference what you really are aiming at. And I would just say, uh, when Dr. Knight keeps the Sabbath, I will uh, join him. <laughs> <laughs> Let's express our appreciation.